Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. Uh, in this episode of Exocast, we're going to cover a few of the month's most interesting papers for June and early July 2021. Um, and we've each focused on a single interesting development. Well, two of us have focused on single interesting <laughs> developments, and Andrew has gone a little bit freeform in his uh, in his topic, but that, that works. Um, but we focused on a few interesting things that have happened in exoplanetary science over the last month. Um, but one of the things that has happened over the last month, which isn't quite exoplanetary science, but does have maybe major impact in exoplanets, is the fact that Hubble um, was offline for the, the large part of early July. So Hannah, you're a Hubble expert. Um, why don't you tell us um, what's been going on with our favourite telescope? Yeah, so... Hubble has experienced some problems with its onboard payload computer on June 13th, which caused the telescope to go into safe mode. Now, the payload computer itself was actually built in the 80s and is one of the original components of the telescope. It's responsible for coordinating the science instruments, which were then put into safe mode to protect them from any kind of cascading issues that might occur from that. Now, issues arise all the time on Hubble due to its age, and we all know how it feels. I, we worked it out. I am closest in age to Hubble. I'm about seven months older than it, and Hugh's about nine months younger. Yeah, I'm three years Andrew. older, so I'm feeling it. <laughs> my, my <laughs> Andrew's feeling it. The reset. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the task of remotely fixing any issues is really tough uh, because obviously Hubble is on orbit and we do not go visit Hubble anymore. So the task falls to two centers in Maryland, USA, the Hubble Operations Center at Goddard Space Flight Center and scientists and operations managers at the Space Telescope Science Institute. And I've actually been lucky enough to work at both of those places, meet the people who are tirelessly keeping our awesome telescope in operation. So a massive thank you to them because on July 17th, Hubble was back up to full operations. And just the other day, we got our first images back from the science operations of the telescope. So what happened in that month? Well, they needed to run a series of tests to determine what triggered that safe mode. Um, and this serves two purposes. One, to learn what it is and how it happened so that it can be fixed. But two, it's to make sure that when they turn things back on, another event doesn't trigger a cascade of additional failures. So during the testing, they determined that the error was associated with reading and writing to memory. And it wasn't actually limited to that main computer, but there were similar failures elsewhere of the same nature. This made them think that it might be more of a hardware failure than a software issue. So they needed to look for the cause of that. In the meantime, they started testing a backup computer, which is on board. But this backup computer has never actually been turned on in space before. So this was a real big test of that backup computer. Has it lasted those 31 years? Has it sat there quite happily and turning it on is just a-okay? They found that it was, which is good. Um, but during that, we were, they were trying to find out what the problem was. And the problem actually seemed to occur in the power control unit and the power regulator itself, which monitors the voltage in and out of the instruments. The unit tripped either because of a voltage problem or it was a faulty 
indicator, basically. The indicator light was was broken. So either way, that seemed to be stuck and they couldn't use that that original computer. So they've left that in, in safety mode and they have now changed to this backup computer, which is working successfully. So now Hubble has been switched to this backup unit and the power unit and computer have resumed those operations. So that is the story of the one month without Hubble. Yay. So this means there's no further backup, I guess. That's the... This does mean there's no further backup. Um, I say we send a mission to do some hardware replacements on Hubble, because I think that <laughs> everybody wants that. It's the little telescope that will, if we just let it. And if we we need another backup within the next 31 years, um, then we've got a bit of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Hubble should be good for a... For a quite a few years is what you know but we should expect a number of these failures we see them every year the longest it went down was a few years ago for three months so this is by no means anything that is uh particularly terrifying it's just not a nice thing every time it, it does go down and it does disrupt observations i had a couple of transits that have been missed um which means that it's not going to happen for a while because we're so schedule dependent for exoplanets so it does have an effect a cascading effect on scheduling but it's not an unexpected thing to happen with with hardware that is so old and in space nice to start the show with some good news for once I mean, for once, we just, you know, most, most of the news we talk about is neutral, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah, I would say neutral, yeah, or exciting yeah. Um, in some way. <clears throat> sure. Um, so, Andrew, let's talk about your multi-paper. So what, what have you been up to this month? What have you been reading? Yeah, I've got a little. I've got a little left field with my news this month. Uh, in that, I was getting, you know, a lot of um, on various email lists and on various, you know, my favorite websites and astrobiology web and and all sorts. And there was a lot of stuff about the early habitability of the Earth this month. And I think that probably had something to do um, with the fact that there was the largest, the world's largest meeting of geochemists happening early in July. Uh, that's the Goldschmidt Conference, which I've been to before. It was incredibly large and very overwhelming, um, but lots and lots of cool science there. And it tends to um, um, well, I guess the stuff that I was seeing tended to be, uh, you know, a little bit about the, the geochemistry of the early Earth and, and, and the habitability of the planet. So there seemed to be a little theme developing and there was a few papers that came out uh, coinciding with this, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe it was just a coincidence. So um, I've kind of broken our, our one paper rule. And also I've got some even conference presentations in here, but there seemed to be a nice theme to it. So I've checked with the co-hosts and they've uh, reluctantly given me approval. So um Let's get into it, uh, I think. Um, so I'm going to start with early Earth's bombardment history, which is always very exciting. Um, and this was revealed this month at work presented at Goldschmidt to have been a little bit more extreme than we thought. Uh, so we'd always known that the Earth was heavily bombarded by asteroids during its earliest history, you know, during the Hadean and the Archean eons, which spanned from the formation of the planet around 4.5 billion years ago to about 2.5 billion years ago. But new research that was led by Simone Marchi of SWIRI, that's the Southwest Research Institute, suggests that during the Archean, from about 3.5 to 2.5 billion years ago, uh, the Earth was hit by an asteroid the size of the impactor that wiped out the dinosaurs uh, on average every 15 million years, which sounds like a long time, but geologically not that long. Uh, and that's a huge impact, a climate changing biosphere disrupting impact um, and this is approximately 10 times higher uh, in terms of impact rates than we previously thought 
So this came from um, a new impact flux model that was based on some reanalysis of ancient spheral uh, layer data. And a spheral is kind of the molten debris that's kind of kicked out when an impactor, uh, you know, hits the hits the crust um, and you know little bits of rock and 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 whatnot end up flying and uh, flying through the atmosphere and landing elsewhere. So the frequency of those impacts and you know their likely impact on the climate and the atmospheric composition of the planet certainly raises questions then uh, potentially about the emergence and persistence of life during that time which is when we think it was probably um, you know, either you know, emerging, or evolving, or trying to persist through a very violent uh, Archean. And actually slightly confounding that picture of the violent Archean environment that was hostile to life uh, comes a paper in Science Advances from Barbara uh, Cavallazzi from the University of Bologna and team, um, which report the potential discovery of a 3.4 billion year old methanogen, uh, which is very, very cool, a microbial organism that survived in the mineral rich subsurface environments around hydrothermal vents below the ancient seafloor. Um, so these in a quote, uh, filamentous microfossils uh, that appear to have a cell wall and a nucleus, which is pretty important for, you know, determining that this is, you know, life or potentially a, a microfossil as opposed to just a bit of organic debris. Um, they were preserved in sedimentary rocks from the Barberton Greenstone Belt in South Africa. And it's been long suggested that, you know, hydrothermal vent systems and maybe subsurface habitats may have been the earliest habitable environments on the Earth. And this new finding adds some weight to that argument. So it does, you know, then beg the question how they survived this very heavy bombardment uh, of the surface, maybe by being buried beneath the seafloor around these hydrothermal vents. Um, so adding on to that, continuing with the theme, I guess, another study presented at Goldschmidt, uh, led by uh, Michael Broadley from the University of Lorraine in France, suggests that diamonds that were being formed around about the same time that Earth was being heavily bombarded, uh, about 2.7 billion years uh, ago, they said that was the minimum age of the, of the m materials they had. So at least 2.7 billion years ago, these diamonds were being formed, um, and they trapped some volatile gases in, in the mineral structure of the diamonds. Uh, in, uh, according to the study, approximately similar proportions to those found in the atmosphere today. Um, so assuming that there's been no you know, um, uh, processing uh, of those ancient diamonds and they've remained intact and unaltered by geothermal processes, this suggests that at least 2.7 billion years ago, the atmosphere in the upper proportion of the Earth's interior, that's the mantle you know, between the crust and the core where these diamonds were being formed, they contained a roughly similar proportion of hydrogen, nitrogen, neon, argon, and carbon-bearing species as today. So those gases are, are, are important for life, especially nitrogen and carbon. So it raises even more questions then uh, about the habitability of the Archean and stability of the composition of the atmosphere if it's being bombarded constantly every 15 million years. Uh, yet these, uh, you know, this this, this diamond uh, study suggests that maybe the atmosphere was pretty was pretty constant. Um, you know, that certainly raises maybe more questions than it answers. Um, how was the atmosphere able to? remain relatively stable all the way uh, until today, uh, with obviously changes in oxygen occurring um, later on. How big a link is there between what's going in, what gas is going into diamonds being formed extremely deep, and what's on the atmosphere, like on the surface? That seems... Well, they weren't actually that deep. Um, the study said they were about 30 kilometers down, which is, uh, you know, in the in the mantle. And uh, our understanding is that the mantle and the atmosphere are, pr are pretty uh, closely linked and really uh, they represent, in terms of volatiles, really uh, each other quite well, given, you know, the, the, the transfer between there. Um, that is the theory, right? So this, that's the suggestion that this is representing not just the mantle, but also the atmosphere as well. And I guess that could be the weak link. Maybe there's something that we're just not understanding yet, that there was some disconnect, perhaps, or they were formed deeper than than, than they thought. 
So, uh, skipping slightly forward in time to the end of the Proterozoic, around 700 million years ago, uh, Ross Mitchell from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and his team shared some interesting uh, new light on the long-debated and always very controversial Snowball Earth hypothesis, which either did or did not see the Earth completely covered in ice from pole to equator uh, during that period. Um, and this was in a paper published in Nature Communications this month. So they analyzed some banded iron formations, which are sedimentary deposits of iron and silica. Uh, these collected in South Australia, but which at the time uh, was located much nearer the equator. And these showed pretty convincing evidence of glaciation at these very low latitudes using a magnetic study. Um, so in the presence of oxygen, these banded iron formations don't form. Um, as uh, iron from, in this case, hydrothermal vents is oxidized rapidly in the oxygenic seawater and then bound up in other min minerals. But during a snowball earth event, the, the idea is that the oceans and the atmospheres were, were disconnected, were decoupled because there was a massive ice sheet over the top of the, uh, of the oceans and that was preventing any oxygen from, from getting down into the deep ocean. Um, and that you know, allowed for insoluble reduced iron deposits to build up the banded iron formations. But the issue was the, the bandiness of these banded iron formations, right? Because if we we're saying that the, the oceans and the atmosphere was disconnected, there shouldn't have been any banding. It should have just been one big old clump of, uh, clump of iron. Um, but what we see you know, is, is, the, is the banding here. Um, and that's always been a, an issue that's a challenge to the Snowball Earth kind of decoupled atmosphere ocean called the sedimentary challenge. And this um, new work suggests that the banding actually coincides with variations in the Earth's orbit, its obliquity and precession in particular, that proceeded completely independently of the Snowball Earth event, of course, um, and that allowed for maybe temporary ice-free conditions at the equator to emerge um, and for the deep oceans to oxidize for a time. And they found some good agreements between Milankovitch cycles and perhaps the, the, the rate of banding uh, and, the, and the laying down of insoluble and soluble materials there. Um, so that might go some way to explaining the discre discrepancy between, uh, you know, the, the Snowball Earth hypothesis and the, the sedimentary challenge. But I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about it. It's probably going to carry And this is talking about the natural cycle of obliquity and precession of exactly. the Earth. It's not saying that there was added an extra chaos in our orbit just that the the position of earth in its orbit plays a role in yeah. the environment of the planet exactly yeah the, the snowball earth event it lasted several million years is that is the idea but those milankovitch cycles take place over hundreds of thousands of years or, or less so yeah that would be already you know happening naturally and completely independently from anything that might be happening on the earth it would affect the climate as as is uh, hypothesized here but it would be happening anyway uh, and that's the idea that there was some um, kind of ice-free areas at the equator. I think that's been considered even like in a slush ball hypothesis, where maybe it was completely frozen at the poles uh, down to, you know, somewhat around the lower latitudes, but there was maybe a slushy equator uh, where life could persist. And maybe this is, you know, we haven't touched on life here, talking about uh, BIFs, and there is some connection there, but that might be another way for life to make a few if, uh, through this uh, this event in these kind of refugia uh, here at the at the equator. So coinciding with that uh, with that discovery, uh, independent but serendipitously relevant work was presented at Goldschmidt from Stephanie Olson's team at Purdue University that suggested that orbital obliquity, I tilt, you know, those kind of natural orbital evolutionary cycles that we were just, just discussing in the previous uh, discovery uh, might affect photosynthetic oxygen production in a positive way. Um, now, this was certainly underway in the ocean 700 million years ago uh, when uh, the previous study was, was looking at those banded iron formations, um, and that would have been increasing the efficiency of recycling of biologically important species like carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And actually, they found that running a climate model and um, you know looking at how uh, at, the, at the distribution of, of, of tiltedness 
Venus uh, of obliquity, they found that, quote, modestly tilted planets like the Earth and nothing crazy like Venus um, that avoid this kind of extreme seasonality or variability in the amount of incident light that's received between winter uh, winter and summer or over the course of an orbit, rather, um, are probably better suited for life and, and possibly the emergence of complex life through maintaining some sort of long-term climate stability. But when you combine it with a previous study, it suggests that you know, the combination of maybe a modest tilt like the Earth has um, at about 23 degrees and some long-term minor variation in those orbital characteristics may actually keep the planet habitable and, and help to you know, survive disruptions to the climate system like global glaciations. I think then the key suggests, or this suggests that the key is to find a sweet spot, right, between a little bit of variation, nothing too stable, to, in our, to enable you to maybe break out of these, uh, un, you know, uh, un... Uh, uh, un unplanned is not the right way. There may be chaotic climatic events or, or climate feedback breakdowns that actually, if there's a little bit of variability in the orbital characteristics of the planet, that can help to mediate some of those things that might be happening on the planet's surface, but not to have too much. It's finding the sweet spot. Uh, yet another thing to think about maybe when we're considering habitable planets in the galaxy. It's just another thing where we're like, oh, well, maybe a planet needs this for life. And that's just narrows that parameter space even more again yeah. and again and again, just something new to try and understand how life survived for so long in so many different ways here on Earth. It makes that, that problem of finding life in the universe that, that much harder. If it we does, think doesn't about it? Yeah. So like I say, we have to have a little bit, but not too much, a little bit of variability, but not too much, not too stable. It has to be a little bit of perturbations, some impacts, but not too many. Um, yeah, it's getting... Think of something about the Earth. There's a Goldilocks zone on that. Exactly. There's also and if you combine all of those, yeah. where's the overlap in that Venn diagram of what, 500 different random parameters? Yeah. Well, you know, as we discussed with our, with our guest this month, Elizabeth, right, maybe a better way to look at things is just a whole bunch of different probability distributions overlaid each with, over each other. And that's just, there's another few to add to the, uh, to the growing data set. We need a big, big, powerful neural network to try and figure this stuff out. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. I think, you know, that's a good theme, you know, running through some recent updates of the earlier habitability and, and you're raising more probably questions than they answered about, you know, looking for planets out there that might be similar to the Earth. Nice. Thank you. It was a good update. Yeah. What about you, Hugh? What's, yeah, what's news? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you broke the rules in terms of talking about multiple things, and I'm also breaking the rules this month because I'm going to talk about... <laughs> We're scientists. <laughs> talking We're about rule breakers. You paper know? that I was involved in, so... Um, okay. That's we, the, we try and avoid those. You've got the caveat there, and you've given the disclaimer, so I think yeah. that's fair. Who better to have on the show yeah. than, you know, the, the, the co-author of the paper? Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about transit detection of the long-period volatile rich super-Earth new 2 loopy with KOPS. Um, and so, for whatever reason, we've never actually discussed KOPS on Exocast before, despite the fact that I'm involved in the mission and, and, and it pays my bills. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you felt like Which you shows... were too close to it somehow? Like, yeah. uh... okay. No, whose how... fault is that? <laughs> Come on, Hugh. I'm just trying to be unbiased, you know. Um, but this is a good opportunity to write that wrong, at least somewhat. So KOPS is a small class ESA mission which was launched in 2019, uh, which stands for Characterizing Exoplanet Satellites. Uh, the, the letters are in there if you search hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Although infamously the CH is actually not standing for Characterize, it's standing for Confederation Helvetica, which is the acronym frequently used for Switzerland, mm. because it is the Swiss who led and proposed CAOPS um, uh, within ESA. So they just uh, they snuck that in there. 
they just <laughs> snuck their own little acronym into into the um, sneaky into the mission. Um, so yes, yeah, so Chaos is a thirty centimeter aperture space telescope, which is about the size of a an American fridge, uh, which is about twice as big as a normal fridge. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually they are really big. <laughs> Um, and so it, it's in low Earth orbits, where it skims the Earth's terminator. So it basically follows the um, the, the the sunset sunrise point of Earth, which enables it to be permanently illuminated, meaning solar panels on the back are constantly getting power. Um, while there's a region anti-sunward where it has a, a kind of permanent view of the sky. Although uh, most of Chaos's observations um, do have these orbital interruptions, like you see with Hubble as well. Um, for some fraction of each orbit, the Earth basically blocks <laughs> blocks Chaos' view of the star. Um, and so it was initially proposed uh, 10 years ago, in fact, um, to look for the transits of small radial velocity detected exoplanets, so planets we didn't know that might, may or may not transit. Um, but then since then, TESS was actually proposed, selected and launched before Chaos. So um, its remit has kind of expanded slightly to include targeted transit observations of any small planets, including those found to transit with TESS. Um, and it's been observing transits since early 2020. Uh, and Newtu Lupi, which um, was one of Chaos's first targets, um, is a, a star in the Southern Hemisphere in the Lupus Wolf constellation, um, where, which has at least initially had three radial velocity detected super-Earths orbiting it. Um, and it, indeed, it's one of the few naked-eye stars with a known multi-planet system around it. Um, and so the planets are all only a few Earth masses in size, or in, in mass, um, and orbit on 11, 27, and 110-day orbits. So um, they're actually kind of much more spaced out than a lot of the, the multi-planet systems we've seen with Kepler and through transit observations. Um, and so in 2019, TESS kind of beat Chaos to the punch by observing um, two transits of the inner planets, uh, and I was involved with that study, in fact. Uh, and so we now had not just a mass, but also a radius for these these two of the inner planets, and so we could get a density. And it looks like the inner planet B is, is kind of very dense, maybe uh, terrestrial without much atmosphere, whereas the planet C, which is slightly longer orbit, still maintains some, uh, some gases, some volatile-rich atmosphere around it. Um, so in 2020, Chaos went back to these two planets to try and catch transits of them and improve our radius measurements of those two inner planets, which we know to transit. Um, and during an observation of planet C, uh, which produced a beautiful light curve uh, with a precision of about 10 parts per million per hour, um, th there was this pronounced 600 ppm, so like, what's that, 0.06% dip was seen in the flux. And um, only after the data came down and we started looking at it um, did we realise that actually this, this matches quite well the uncertainty region where if planet D was to transit, it, it, we might have seen it. The uncertainty, that region was about 10 days long, so we were extremely um, surprised to see any sort of transit in, extra transit in the data. But when Letitia Del Rez, who who's, uh, works in Chaos from, um, from Leuven, Leuven University, um, when she was tasked with modelling the observations, that the, the, the expected transit of, of New Tulipi D on that 110-day orbit matches perfectly the dip that was seen, um, although we only caught the first kind of two-thirds of that transit because actually it's, it's a nine-hour-long transit, so um, <laughs> it's an extremely uh, interesting and long-period planet. So a, a transit unlike we kind of have seen for most um, 
most other super-Earths that we know about. Um, so the implied radius for Nutu Lupi, based on this transit detection, uh, is about 2.6 Earth radii, which suggests that it too has held on to some of that hydrogen-helium gas or, or volatile envelope. Um, so probably more of a mini-Neptune than a super-Earth, um, unlike Nutu Lupi B. Um, and so the, 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 I think one of the problems with this system is that when it was detected as a few Earth mass uh, radial velocity planet 10 years ago, um, it was called a super-Earth. And so now we have a radius. We know that that's not quite true, that it's maybe more so like a mini So change Neptune. your title. So the, yeah, so the fact that the title... A volatile-rich super-Earth super <laughs> is just a very standard mini-Neptune. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Semantics. Yeah, okay. There's three words. You can replace it just with two. two. But yes, very cool. I love a nine-hour transit. That's very... Yes. Yeah, so this is one of the longest small planets with a known mass and radius, so a known density at this point. Uh, and the fact that it orbits a naked eye star is an incredible opportunity for other characterization efforts in the future. Um, but not all characterization efforts are possible. So for the moment, unless some special mode can be invented, James Webb cannot observe Nutu Lupi B, C or D because it's too bright. So <laughs> it's, it, it saturates the detectors far too quickly for uh, James Webb to actually point at it, which is... A, vast, a really annoying thing, but um, I'm sure there are other telescopes. Is it that something that Ariel could look at? Does Ariel have saturation limits quite as extreme <sighs> as James Webb? Potentially not. Yeah, it's going to be a smaller aperture, so yeah, it's definitely mm. a possibility for Ariel, depending on what their saturation point would be. Um, but it's certainly set to be a, a benchmark system um, for long into the future, just based on the fact that it's so bright. Um, Nine hours uh, makes it quite difficult to do ground-based characterization, though, because, you know, obviously a night of observing is a little bit longer than that. Uh, yes. Sorry, a little bit shorter than that, um, which means that you're only ever going to get those partial transits. Is there, is there something that can be done, you know, with those? Um, you take your baseline the night before, you take your in-transit data during one night, and then you take your next baseline the night after. Is it a particularly no, stable star? <laughs> what kind of star is this? So it's a sun-like star, um, but actually it's so... Chaos was able to detect um, P-mode pulsations, so astro-seismic pulsations on the star, because it's just leaving the main sequence. So it's a little bit older than our sun, it's, um, and so it's just starting to... It's a little drift towards becoming a, a subgiant and then a, a giant. Um, but it's relatively um, in, inactive thanks to its age, so um, there's a chance that from the ground it might be observable. Fascinating. Great work, you and you and the team. It sounds great. Yeah, hopefully more to come from Chaos like that. Yeah, it'd be good to hear more about Chaos in the future as well. So, right. Hannah, what have you gone for this month? Yeah, I guess I'll wrap us up. Uh, and this month I have chosen yet another Clouds paper. Surprise, surprise. Hope you're all happy. <laughs> um, but this time uh, focusing on the all-important practical work being done here on Earth to simulate the conditions of haze formation on small planets and moons. The paper was published in Nature Astronomy by Shinting Yu et al. titled Haze Evolution in Temperate Exoplanet Atmospheres Through Surface Energy Measurements. Um, and thank you to Shinting for sending me a copy of that paper because I did not have access to it, uh, which I will have to sort out. Um, so I have to tell you right from the start, this paper has some fantastic figures and diagrams in it with really detailed explanations in the caption. So if you're just a figure reader of a paper, this is ex perfect for you because it will tell you everything you need to know 
without reading the rest of the study. So brilliant, brilliant figures. Um, considering that they're having to explain some very complex laboratory work and detailed chemistry. So it's uh, really nice to see in a paper. Uh, so let's jump right in. Why make hazes in a lab? Well, we know that many exoplanets, especially those in the temperate-ish range, so we're talking a couple of hundreds of Kelvin instead of the thousands of Kelvin. So in that temperate-ish range, they've been shown to have significant like opacity sources in their atmosphere, which block the light from interacting with the gases. And that prevents us from showing us what those atmospheres are made of. And this opacity is most likely caused by hazes. These are photochemically generated material which is suspended in the atmosphere. The amount of haze that is present is a delicate balance between the production of that haze and the removal. Now, evidence from the solar system hazes suggests that they're not actually easily destroyed. So it's actually about removal. So very specific, that word there, removal rather than destruction of hazes. So production and removal. And this latest paper is from the Hearst Phaser Lab. So go back to Exocast 29B for our chat with Sarah Hurst. And it's all about the removal, how it happens, what chemical properties it might be dictated by. The team conducted a series of experiments in the lab over a range of temperatures, 300, 400, and 600 Kelvin, with a range of different gas combination inputs, which is varying the amount of water, CO2, CO, methane, hydrogen, helium, nitrogen, all other things. Uh, all of those mixes were actually under equilibrium mixtures. So, and anything with more than 1% abundance, so more than 1% of that gas in that equilibrium mixture was used just because anything less than that is much harder to put into the laboratory equipment. And they ran a range of different metallicities, so how many heavy elements there were relative to hydrogen helium atoms in that. And they used two different energy sources, a plasma source and a UV bright source. Now, in the experimental chamber, they then waited for that chemistry to happen. Now, I said waited that is not effortless. That involves a lot of careful work and monitoring. Um, and they collect any solid material that forms between those reactions of those gases um, on a little substrate disk that they put in the experimental chamber. Now, in this paper, they look specifically at the samples made to measure the surface tension of the material that's produced in each of those experiments. And they ran 18 experiments overall, nine with each of those two energy sources. And the big difference between the types of materials made using the plasma source compared to the UV source. Now, the plasma lamp simulates more energetic stream of particles into the atmosphere, while the UV lamp is actually at a lower energy. So... Many of the exoplanets that have been discovered certainly have their atmospheres like bombarded by this high energy radiation because the especially the ones that we characterize are very close to their star. So they're under this intense radiation, whether it be this kind of more plasma-like radiation, which is, is very, very high energy, or this UV lamp, which is the lower energy. So it's a really good simulation of what these temperate worlds what the environments they're under might be like. Would it be fair to say that it could also represent different layers in the atmosphere? Upper atmosphere, energetic particles, lower atmosphere, UV lamp? So it, you'd actually need the higher energy particles penetrating deeper into the atmosphere. So um, you need, it would be about, 
it's kind of difficult to say because we think photochemistry happens quite high up because you have to have the energies to be able to interact with those particles. We see it here on Earth um, that photochemistry happens at different layers in the atmosphere, but it happens in different ways depending on those energies. So yes, it could be those different layers for the different energies, um, but it would be very hard to kind of work out because you'd need to know exactly what the opacity sources above those layers are as well. And if you've got high opacity above those layers, you're not going to get deeper. So it's the layering structure of a planetary atmosphere is incredibly complex. And as we talked about a few episodes ago, we don't even know the layering structure of Venus's atmosphere enough. So it's something that is unlikely for us to be able to understand and it's, it's full. And it's something that things like Dragonfly are going to try and help us understand more about Titan as well. So we've got a lot of things in our solar system where we can explore that aspect of, you know, photochemistry and haze production and cloud production. Um, and those two, those two worlds, Venus and Titan, are perfect in our solar system for us to start trying to understand these processes. And these lab experiments actually compare directly to Titan. So they do experiments which are based on Titan, and then those experiments have been compared to data from Titan, from Cassini and the Huygens probe. And the all of the experiments for the exoplanets are then compared to that Titan sample as a baseline. So they, they use the information we have on our solar system worlds with those hazy atmospheres to really calibrate and understand what we're seeing with the experiments for these different gas mixtures and different exoplanets. So in the plasma experiments, there was a much wider range of surface energies that they measured for those samples, with a majority with lower surface energies and thus higher contact angles. They, they form steeper bubbles. So think of a drop of water on a, a slide or on a piece of glass. So if you've got a flat piece of glass, think of a drop of water on that. It forms a little kind of arch, half semicircle. What they're measuring is the angle of the edge of that circle, so they can work out how bubbled it is. And if you have this um, lower surface energy, then your bubble can be bigger. So they had higher contact angles compared to their UV counterparts. And the total surface energy of the material can be used to indicate how cohesive, how easily it sticks together to form larger molecules. So if you want to remove a haze from an atmosphere via gravitational settling, so rain, uh, they need to be able to reach a size that's greater than one micron across. Now, the general size of the particles is around 20 to 80 nanometers. That's 0.02 and 0.08 microns. So they're very, very small compared to that size they need to get to so that gravity kind of pulls them down and they are no longer present high up in the atmosphere where we're measuring them for these exoplanets. So the stickier they are, the more cohesive they are, the more likely they'll be able to grow to the sizes that are needed to be removed from the atmosphere. So they found that the surface energy for the hazes were lowest around 400 Kelvin. And this suggested that they don't clump very well and will thus have a much lower removal rate, which will increase the amount of haze expected in the atmosphere at that temperature. Now, with this information, they show a suggestive correlation between haziness of a planetary atmosphere and that of the measured water amplitude with this planetary equilibrium temperature. And looking at sample of nine planets from 200 to 750 Kelvin, they suggest that actually the hazier planets are at this particular temperature and that you actually get clearer as you go colder and as you go hotter. 
because of the nature of how these materials clump together, which uh, they determined from the measurements that they made directly from these lab samples on those surface energies. Now, I do need to write at the end, as always, put on my skeptics and nitpicking hat on. Um, the conclusions, you know, relating it to the equilibrium temperature for these exoplanets and looking at the water absorption feature, which was measured with the Hubble Space Telescope's Wide Field Camera Free. You've, you've heard about that a lot if you've listened to our show. Um, they use the word suggestive, which is great, but it's a, the, all of the figures lead to this one conclusion point. Um, and it is a little bit strong, uh, I feel, because a number of the measurements that the, that are being used have been updated in the literature as more data has become available. And we understand more about what that water abundance means uh, relative to the planet itself. So there's a lot of things inside that measurement that we still need to pick apart. Um, and, and additionally, the surface energy used in this conclusion are those averaged over all of the metallicities in the experiment. So I said before that they, they measured different metallicities, they have three different metallicities. They do 100, 1000 and 10,000 times solar metallicity, where in the plasma case, the, the shape of this energy with temperature is actually dominated by the 1000 times solar case. So that dominates the average that you get when you take the average of the surface energies over that metallicity for that temperature range. The 1000 times solar case is actually the one that's causing this shape where at 400 Kelvin, the, the surface energies mean that the material is not cohesive. So I think that it has a lot of nuance in there. There's a lot of parameters that we're changing with all of these experiments and we need to keep digging. Uh, the text is incredibly forthright. So while I said at the beginning, the figures are beautiful and you can get a narrative from it. If you want to know the details and understand exactly what's going on, the text is incredibly clear about what those caveats are and some of the things that I just mentioned as well. Um, a final note for this, um, this is just the beginning. The, the Phaser Lab's been producing some amazing stuff from these experiments and we always need more lab-based data. This is real world. You can touch it. You can look at it. You can hold it in your hand. Information on how hazes and clouds and different gases in these planetary atmospheres are reacting to form what we're measuring with the Hubble Space Telescope, with the James Webb Space Telescope in the future with those other large telescopes. We need this ground truth. So we need more of these experiments. And I really hope to see a lot more coming out of these and a lot more funding going the way of these laboratory tests because uh, it, it really is the future for us to be able to pick apart these nuances and go, actually, well, it's 1,000 times solar case that does this at this particular temperature. Does that mean that we can use this to understand more about the metallicity of the atmosphere where it's actually hidden from us when we're measuring the gases? Or can we use it to understand more about where in the atmosphere these hazes are being produced? Like Andrew, Andrew asked, you know, does that energy that we're putting into our experiments tell us a little bit more about it? So please, please, I want to see more lab-based stuff in the future. It's a good plea. I think to end on. And uh, as Hannah said, go check out Exocast 29 uh, if you want to hear more about uh, what Sarah Hurst's lab's doing. Some really cool work. I think that, was, that interview was before a lot of the publications came out as well. So it's like a ground-based 
let's go in raw look at what the starting of doing some of these experiments um, and how it relates to Titan. So it's a it's a good episode if you want to go go hear that one. Exocast. I think that's a, probably a good a good time to, to wrap things up for the news episode this month. Um, of course, please don't um, forget to look out for our other episode, which we published this month, in which we talk to Dr. Elizabeth Tasker uh, from JAXA about planet diversity, neural networks, science communication, and more. Um, of course, you can get in touch with us to let uh, us know your thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on Twitter. Please do. Um, and also, you can find all of our ep- episodes on our website, exocast.org, uh, on iTunes, Spotify, and all good and probably bad podcasting apps, too. Plus, you can now buy merch at our Threadless store, exocast.threadless.com. Or if you want to just help us out uh, in terms of covering our web server costs, you can contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Chaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org.